Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harlan. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. And today we continue on in the series Paul and His Communities. We have dealt with the situation at Rome that led Paul to write his letter in the previous episode. That situation involved ethnic tensions between Greeks on the one hand and Judeans on the other. Both the Greeks and Judeans we're talking about were followers of Jesus. But the Greeks were looking down upon the Judeans because Judeans were following the Jewish law and these particular Gentiles, these particular Greeks, were not. We suggested in the previous episode that this may or may not be linked to a specific incident that we hear about in some historians, including Suetonius. That is, that there was an expulsion of at least some Judeans from Rome in the years around 49 CE. This situation at Rome may be partly caused by the fact that Judeans have been expelled, leaving Gentile Greek followers of Jesus still in Rome, and now Judeans are beginning to return and finding problems of integration and being looked down upon by some of the Gentile followers of Jesus at Rome. In this episode, we now move on to how does Paul address this situation? What is Paul's response to this very specific situation involving ethnic tensions at Rome? And we'll see that in chapters 1 to 8, Paul starts his main argument to the Judean first and also to the Gentile. Here, Paul is arguing to counterbalance this feeling that some Gentiles have, have of being superior to Judeans. In order to counterbalance this, Paul argues what seems to be a statement of superiority of Judeans to Greeks, ironically, particularly ironically in light of how he dealt with the situation back in Galatia in our previous episodes. But what's interesting is his attempt to use this counterbalancing argument really is an attempt to argue something else he states plainly. God shows no partiality. So in chapters 1 to 8, Paul is trying to show how God shows no partiality and that both Greeks and Judeans are on an equal plane, both in terms of being equally guilty of sin and equally condemnable, as I put it, on the one hand, and equally have access to being sons of Abraham. Abraham once again becomes the model not only the model for Judeans, which is a natural model, but also the model for Gentiles and Greeks who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so today we'll get into the details of how Paul deals with this. After he does this in chapters 1 to 8, he moves on to another issue in chapters 9 to 11, a very closely related issue, however, and that is if both Judeans and Greeks are on an equal plane and equally condemnable, why is it that God chose the people of Israel? And he argues quite positively about the history of Israel and the place of Israel and the history of God's relationship with humanity. And it's in Romans that he argues very strongly that all Israel will see salvation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. Okay, let's get back into the material here and see how Paul responds to this situation. The situation involves tensions along ethnic lines, maybe based on the fact that Judeans have left Rome and now are returning, maybe. But either way, it's still ethnic divisions. And it's Gentiles, Greeks, he specifically calls them Greeks, 
They're Greek immigrants in Rome. Greeks are thinking they're superior and are judging Judeans. And let's get into Paul's response to this situation now. To the Judean first and also to the Greek. He repeats this phrase, or sometimes it's to the Judean first and also to the Gentile. That phrase is the key to understanding how Paul responds to the situation. You can already see in the statement he makes, there seems to be an imbalance. He's saying Judeans are first. Not something you would expect Paul to say, at least if you were thinking of the situation in Galatia. But let's, first of all, get an idea of some of the generalities in why Paul writes and what rhetoric he uses before we get into that specific argument he makes. Paul's purposes in writing are multiple, you could say. First of all, going west. In chapter 15, he explains travel plans. Once in a while in Paul's letters, he does this, where he explains where he is now, where he's planning to go, when he hopes to come see the people. And the whole letter to the Romans, in some ways, seems to be preparation for going west. He's expecting that he's going to go to Rome sometime in the near future. And he wants to prepare the way. So that's one aspect of the purpose of him writing. A second related aspect that also comes out in chapter 15, 22 to 33, is the collection for Jerusalem. He's writing to the Romans, partly pleading with them to pray to God that his gift from the Gentiles will be accepted by the Jerusalem leadership. Way back in Galatians, we learned how Paul said that the main thing that he learned from the leaders of Jesus' uh, Jesus movement at Jerusalem was, remember the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul, in several of his letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, refers back to his emphasis on the Corinthians need to gather money together so that they can send from the Gentiles to the Judeans in Jerusalem. Send money to support the poor in Jerusalem. And we already know how important that is to Paul's overall mission. It's basically the thread that makes it possible for his mission to look legitimate to some degree, it seems, in relation to the Jerusalem leadership with whom he has so much tension, it seems. Here we are in the last of Paul's letters, data, data in terms of date. We're in the fi- between 55 and 60, most likely. Most scholars think that Romans is the last letter we have from Paul himself. In other words, in the last glimpse we have of anything to do with the real-life Paul, we see him worried about the collection being rejected and writing to the Romans, pleading with them to pray that it not be rejected. He's anticipating rejection. He's anticipating that the main way he was hoping he would be able to maintain positive relationship with the leadership in Jerusalem, he's now worried that the whole thing's going to fall through. Look at verses 24 and following. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be sped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints. This is the collection for the holy ones. For the poor in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the holy ones at Jerusalem. He's got a collection from Macedonia and Achaia. Who doesn't he have a collection from? So he has money from the Corinthians who are in Achaia. And he has money from Macedonia. Remember Philippi and Thessalonica were in Macedonia. Who's missing here? Galatians are blatantly missing here. 
it almost sounds like he has no money from the Galatians. In other words, he's got money from everyone as part of his gesture to the main Jesus movement and Judean Jesus movement in Jerusalem. As part of his gesture, he has money from everyone except for Galatia. And what was his problem at Galatia? Problems with people coming from James and people associated with Peter who were advocating circumcision among the Gentiles. If only Paul could have got a collection from Galatia. It would have said a lot for the maintenance of his positive relations or for the creation of positive relations, depending on how you look at it, with the leadership of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem. However, he did not, it seems. And it seems now he feels the whole thing's going to be rejected because a gift is more than a gift you guys already know. A gift in the Greco-Roman world is more than a gift. It means it's, it's about reciprocity, it's about interchange, it's about superior-inferior relations or equal relations. It's, it's always got something attached. And the gift Paul is giving from the Gentiles to the Judeans in Jerusalem was supposed to be a gift that made a difference in the whole legitimacy of Paul's activity. Legitimacy not in his own eyes, because he feels as God told him to do what he's doing and it's right. But he still, it seems, even though they're so-called pillars in Jerusalem, he still wants some recognition from them, some increase in positive relations. But it seems possible that towards the end of his life, he wasn't getting that. Let's read on to see where that comes in. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. And indeed, they are in debt to them. So this idea of debt ideas. They were talking about gift and exchange, change and a gift, uh, benefaction and benef- uh, honors, and all this sort of thing is part of this. So the indebted, the Gentiles are indebted to the Judeans at Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual, in the Judeans of Jerusalem's spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. They owe them. The Gentiles owe the Judeans in Jerusalem. When therefore I have completed this, when I've taken the money to Jerusalem and have delivered to them what has been raised, I shall go on by way of you to Spain. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service collection for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the holy ones, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul is very worried about the rejection of this collection. It may be linked to the fact that he's already had troubles in Galatia, and Galatia situation is linked to Jerusalem. So this is one of the purposes of Paul writing, that he's worried about the thing he's about to do and take money to the collection to Jerusalem. Right? That's a theory. A theory based on the evidence, though, that we have there. So there's going west, preparing for his travel west. There's getting help about the possibility of the rejection of his collection. And finally, the main situation that we've been talking about that are the purposes of this letter. In other words, to reconcile Judean and Greek, to get Greeks to be less superior in their attitudes towards Judeans is the main purpose of the whole letter. But nonetheless, there's there's multiple purposes going on here. But let's get into things a little more fully here now. First of all, the rhetoric that we encounter in Romans. Romans has deliberative elements. He's trying to get the Greeks at Rome who belong to the Jesus movement to deliberate and to start doing things differently in how they look at Judeans that belong to the Jesus movement. 
One of the things that does come out in Romans, though, that you haven't encountered quite as much before in Paul's letters, is another style of argumentation, of teaching technique, that Paul uses in Romans that isn't as prevalent in any other of his letters, and it's very prevalent in Romans. And that is what is known as the diatribe. Diatribe is a technique that was used by people like Stoic philosophers and Stoic philosophers teaching their students. And it was a technique where you're the person making an argument, and the way in which you spell out that argument, unpack it, show the intricacies of your argument, is you imagine an imaginary interlocutor, an imaginary objector to what you're saying. You've been unpacking a part of your argument. You then anticipate what an imaginary opponent might say, and then you state what that imaginary opponent would say. And you object to something. You yourself object to something. You then counter your own objection. And your argument gets more and more sophisticated by doing this. Because you're not only presenting your argument, you're actually presenting it constantly thinking, okay, what might someone who disagrees with this say? And you then say what that someone might say, and then you find a way to show how that's incorrect and that your argument is more valid. So Paul's constantly using this diatribe technique throughout his letter. And we'll come across it more when we're working our way through it. So that's a rhetorical technique, a teaching technique that Paul uses here that gives you the Hellenistic side of Paul, so to speak, because it's something that Greeks and Romans do in their style of teaching. We're going to get into Paul's view of the law extensively as we work through, but we're on that topic again, whether we like it or not. And we're back to the complicated nature of what Paul thinks of the Torah and what aspects of the Torah he feels do apply to Gentiles and which aspects of the Torah he feels do not apply to Gentiles. And back to the whole fact that Paul has both positive views of the Torah and negative views when they pertain to something that he does not feel Gentiles should do. Let's get into Paul's response, though, to this overall situation. And it is precisely this, to the Judean first and also to the Greek. On top of that, another element in the argument is God shows no partiality. He repeats these two phrases over and over and over so much so that you can't possibly miss them, thankfully, and that's his thesis. There's a bit of an irony in the thesis already, you might see, because he's deliberately putting Judeans first, and then he's arguing that God shows no partiality. Part of the reason for that built-in irony is deliberate. He's dealing with a situation where Greeks think they're the first, and he's arguing for the need for Judeans and Greeks to be together in the same community without judging one another. That's his main argument. Do not judge one another. But he's mainly worried about Greeks judging Judeans, not the other way around. The way he does this is by arguing Gentiles, Greeks primarily, and Judeans are equally condemnable. Chapters 1 to 8 are all focused on this very issue. Greeks and Judeans are equally condemnable and equally have access to having the condemnation lifted. So that's the equality aspect to chapters 1 to 8. So all of 1 to 8 is united by this idea. And let's unpack it a bit. He begins by showing that Greeks, especially, he starts with the Greeks when he says, who's sinful and who's condemnable? He starts with the Greeks because he's addressing a situation where Greeks are thinking they're superior to Judeans. But he begins with them and then moves on to Judeans, showing both Gentiles and Judeans are sinful. He begins with the Greeks. And what do you expect him to talk about? Well, the typical thing that a Judean thinks when he thinks about Greeks. They're a bunch of sexual perverts, and they worship any old thing that comes along. 
idolatrous and immoral. And those are the two things he highlights. And this is one of the passages you'll come across that is center to one of the you know, modern Christian debates about attitudes towards homosexuality within Christianity. And he talks about women sleeping with women and men sleeping with men and all that in this section. But the point is, in the situation of Rome, is he's talking to Greeks who are thinking they're superior. Well, let me put you in your place, buddy. You guys come from a background that's all about worshiping any old thing that comes along and engaging in sexual immorality. You are condemnable, sinful. He then moves on to Judeans, though. And he says Judeans are also under the power of sin in chapters 2 and 3. Let's look at chapter 3 for a moment in that section that I just gave as an illustration of diatribe, just for a moment. Because it's here that he's talking about circumcision, spiritual circumcision as the real circumcision. And that the value of circumcision is very high. He comes to a point, though, where he's said so much positive about circumcision and so much positive about the law and so much positive about Judeans in order to counter the Greeks who think they're superior. thinks He goes, okay, I'm imagining someone objecting here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Just earlier he said, what advantage has the Jew? Is the last diatribe thing he had. What advantage does the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Next one. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. It's a complicated argument and he's unpacking it. But this putting Judeans in the same category now of sinful, despite the fact that the Judeans have the Torah, despite the fact that circumcision is valuable and circumcision of the, the internal circumcision is the true circumcision, despite the fact that Judeans have that, they're also in the condition of being condemnable. Let's go on to this next section here. It's in, late in chapter 3 that you have another phrase that further underlines what Paul's main point is. There is no distinction. Even though, ironically, he's making a distinction in order to reverse the distinction at Rome, the distinction at Rome is Greeks thinking they're superior to Judeans. He's countering that by making Judeans first and Greeks second. But then he's really arguing there's no distinction between Greek and Judean. For there is no distinction, I'm in verse 22 of chapter 3. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. So he set it up here, Judeans and Greeks, equally condemnable as sinful, Judeans and Greeks, equally having access with no distinction to having that situation remedied by believing God. The same thing we learned about in Galatians. By believing that what God says he will do, he'll do. And that by believing that God raised Jesus from the dead is the main thing he has in his mind. Here's where you have some more information that's similar to what we were familiar with from Galatians. Paul using the story of Abraham as the illustration of how he imagines Judean and Greek living together in the same Jesus group. And he argues in chapter 4 that Abraham is the father of us all, both Judeans and Gentiles. This shows there's some consistency to Paul's thought. He's not always consistent. And sometimes the situation he's addressing makes it seem that he's inconsistent. There is one thing that seems to be consistently in his mind at least between Galatians, the writing of Galatians and the writing of Romans, and that is Abraham's story and the way he interprets it. Take a look at chapter 4. Imagines the student's question here and says it. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? He quotes the exact same passage of Genesis chapter 15 that you're familiar with. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That whole scenario in chapter 15 of Genesis where the first covenant is made with Abraham and where the promise of many children is given to Abraham. And he says, okay, even though I'm old, even though I'm childless, I believe you, God. I believe you, Yahweh. That is the thing that Paul has in mind again as an explanation. Take a look further down, though, because it spells out some of what was bubbling up in the argument in Galatians that I explained to you comes explicit in this chapter here. Chapter 4, verses 9 and following. Is this blessing, the blessing on Abraham by Yahweh, is this blessing pronounced only upon the circumcised or also upon the uncircumcised? We say that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received circumcision as a sign or seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also follow the example of the faith which our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. There's something he didn't say in Galatians because of the situation there, right? Emphasizing that Abraham is the father of the Greeks because Abraham believed and was considered righteous before he was circumcised. Not only saying that, Paul says circumcision was important. And through the fact that Abraham was circumcised, he becomes the father of the Judeans who believe God and are circumcised. He goes on to this phrase, Abraham is the father of us all, both Judeans and Greeks. So throughout Paul's letter, he's trying to bring the Greeks down a level because they're judging the Judeans, you'll see. Everyone's equally sinful, equally has access to having that sin accounted for by believing God. This idea of Adam as the type of Christ is also linked up in Paul to baptism. Let's take a look at this little snippet about baptism because we rarely have Paul referring to baptism. It turns out that baptism seems to have been the initiation rite for Pauline groups and maybe for other early followers of Jesus. In other words, instead of circumcision or as well as being circumcised, you were baptized. And Paul emphasizes that as the initiation rite as the entrance requirement to belong to the Jesus groups. Here he just happens to refer to how he imagines the focus of this ritual, how he conceives of it, what is important about baptism for him, and how he would explain it to someone. So let's take a look at it, because it's one of these rare cases where we get a glimpse into an early Christian ritual. Chapter 6 of Romans. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it. So he's going to use the illustration of baptism as a way of explaining how this works. And he's in the process showing how important baptism is. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the notion of baptism involved going into water. And there's also the element that we're going to see in other sources, but not here perhaps as much. Taking off your clothes, submerging in water, 
The submerging in water being symbolic of dying with Christ and going into Christ. And Paul has this notion of the group of Jesus followers, wherever they are, being the body of Christ. So baptism is the initiation rite through which you leave off your old life by taking off your old clothes. You die with Christ by going into the water. You become one in the body of Christ by going into the water. And you come out with and get new clothes to symbolize your new life, leaving behind your idolatrous sexual pervert life as a Greek and taking on a new life and worshiping the Judean God. Look at this next phrase there that shows you that uh, more fully. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there's a symbolism of death and resurrection coming out of the water after baptism as the equivalent of resurrection and an anticipation of the fact that followers of Jesus will share in some sort of resurrection in the future. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self, that you left behind before you went into the water, was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and he might no longer be enslaved to sin. And there's more about it here. But it gives you a glimpse into how baptism is conceived. And there's a whole lot of ideas associated with baptism here in Paul's mind. Let's move on now that we've got an idea of Judeans and Greeks equally sinful, equally accessible to being sons of Abraham through believing like Abraham believed. And go on to the next main section. And that is where he's still dealing with Greeks thinking they're superior to Judeans, to Israelites, to Jews. In all of chapters 9 to 11, is saying that if everyone has equal access to being considered righteous, well, what was the point of having Israel at all? Why would God choose a people if it turns out everyone can be God's people? Why was Israel God's people? And that's what he's anticipating, the objection. And then chapters 9 to 11 are all about the place of Israel in the history of God's relations with people. And it turns out that in Romans, Paul has a very positive statement about the status of Israel. And in essence, let me tell you what he argues before we go into it, because we're going to run out of time eventually. And that is, he argues, all Israel will be saved. It is not that the Gentiles have inherited what was originally given to Israel, and now the Israelites are condemned, and now the Judeans are condemned unless they follow Jesus. He believes that all Israel, all the Judeans will be saved. He anticipates a time when all Judeans will recognize that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and will join the Jesus movement. Let's see how he unpacks this and uh, see how far we can get with it today. Chapters 9 to 11. But it's very important because it shows very positive statements about Israel, about the law, about God's relationship with Judeans that show you how difficult it is to dismiss Paul's view as though it's just Paul versus the law, or Paul versus Israel, or Paul versus Judeans. And it especially dismisses something you've already had dismissed, but you need to be reminded of. Paul is not about starting a new religion. We're not seeing here the birth of Christianity. We're seeing Paul the Judean advocating a Judean Jesus movement, thinking that now, in the end times, in his Judean apocalyptic mindset, in the end times, the Gentiles will now be fully a part of God's people. He's telling about the Israelites here in chapter 9. 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen by race. He's so in anguish over the fact that the majority of Judeans, his ethnic group, seem to not accept Jesus as the Messiah. He's in anguish about it. They are Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. There is a Judean strongly stating something. To the Judeans, to the Israelites belongs the sonship. To the Israelites belongs the glory. To the Israelites belongs the covenants. To the Israelites belongs the Torah, the worship, the promises. God made his promises to his people. Very positive statement about Israel. Look what he goes on to next, though. But it is not as though the word of God had failed. It seems like if that's the situation, that Israel's in that status, how is it now that they haven't accepted the Messiah that was sent? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's going to argue about a remnant. He's going to interpret certain passages in the prophets about the idea of a remnant of Israel, of the true Israel within Israel. But he's then going to start expanding it back out again. So he's going to say, the the true Israel is a smaller remnant that has been kept, that God has kept his promises to the smaller remnant within Israel. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued the righteousness which is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law? Why would we say that? Because they did not pursue it through faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is the next stage of his argument. Israel stumbled. And the argument goes on to say, Israel stumbled but did not fall. They tripped but caught themselves. The trip looked like they lost it. The stumbling over the stone of Jesus being the Messiah seemed like they lost it. However, Paul goes on to argue, they stumbled but did not fall. All Israel will be saved is his concluding argument. Chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He then comes back to the remnant idea, but he says this in verse 11. So I ask, has Israel stumbled so as to fall? By no means. But through their trespass, through their stumbling over the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, salvation has come to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means, if their stumbling means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? If Israel tripping means suddenly the Gentiles are part of God's people, tells you something more about how much more importantly Israel will be included. And this is his final argument here. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand, verse 25, this mystery, brothers, a hardening has come upon the heart of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. 
Remember, he has this idea of we're in the end times. There's a flood of Gentiles now. Once the flood of Gentiles come in, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Verse 29, the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. The promises God made to Israel, the covenants God made with Israel, all of that that Paul was referring to earlier positively will never be revoked. All Israel will be saved in Paul's mindset. He seems to believe that all Israel will eventually come around to accepting Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. That's what he seems to believe. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music of this podcast is my own remix of Brian Eno and David Byrne's Help Me Somebody from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, copyright 1981, None Such Records, with an Uzbek vocal sample by Savara Nazarkhan from her song Kunlarim, copyright 2007, Real World Music. Both are used with permission under Creative Commons type licenses.